questions and what a challenging yet profitable study it's been. But I suspect now many of us are probably ready for a little break, which is often the case as we wrap up the year. But generally speaking, it only takes us a few weeks and we start to miss the study and the fellowship time. And that's what happened last year. And a few dear sisters and I decided to get together. We said we were going to read a Christian biography, and then we would get together every few weeks and discuss what we had been reading. And we selected a biography on Elizabeth Prentice. You might know her as the author of Stepping Heavenward and also the hymn More Love to Thee. And it was a wonderful book about a remarkable woman. But in addition to her amazing faith, something that really stood out to me was the letter writing that took place in her day. I just thought it was precious, and it just made me think, I think we've lost that art of letter writing today. Because today, when we want to stay in touch, we just use our phone to text, talk, or tweet. <laughs> but isn't there still something just so, so personal about receiving a handwritten card or letter? Well, over the past 16 weeks, we've studied the doctrines that Paul presented to the church in Rome. Doctrines such as the sinfulness of man, justification by faith alone, life as a new creation in Christ, the security of our salvation, relationships between Jews and Gentile believers, and these are just to name a few. As we've studied these doctrines, it's been easy to lose sight of the fact that what we've been reading is a letter. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wasn't writing a book on doctrine or theology. He was writing a letter to real, ordinary people. So now as we reach the conclusion of the letter, we're going to begin to understand some of the reasons Paul had for writing to them. So let's open our Bible to Romans 15, 14, as we review the conclusion of Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. It's important to remember that Paul was writing to a church that he didn't actually establish himself and to people he had not even met, or most of them he hadn't met. And by this point in the letter, they may have wondered if Paul thought they were lacking in their understanding. So in a tactful way, Paul offers an explanation for why he wrote some things to them in a rather bold way. He wanted to assure them that his writing was not an indictment against their understanding of the Christian faith. In verse 14, he calls them his brothers and says that he is satisfied about them, meaning he's convinced that they were morally excellent and complete in their knowledge. He's referring here to their full understanding of the Christian way, which enabled them to instruct one another. The meaning behind the word instruct is to admonish, which is to warn, advise, or urge, or it's to counsel one another. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul urges the Thessalonians to admonish the idol, which means to bring someone back into line, to encourage the faint-hearted, those who are prone to fear and worry, and to help the weak, which are those who might be weak in their faith. Furthermore, they were to be patient with them all. And this same principle applies to us today. It's our Christian obligation to one another in the body of Christ and all of our admonition, encouragement, and help should be based on the counsel of God that we find in his word. So we see from verse 14 that was Paul was writing to a mature church in Rome. They were strong in their understanding of Christian doctrine, and this right understanding led to moral living and enabled them to admonish one another. So then why did Paul write to them so boldly? Well, he tells us in verses 15 to 16 that he wrote to remind them of things they already knew, but he was also expanding on their understanding. 
and don't we all need reminding? God's people have been told throughout history to remember. 2 Peter 3.1, Paul writes, or excuse me, Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Sometimes the truths we know are brought to remembrance, and then they're implied in a, applied in a different context. And this is essentially what Paul did. The Roman believers clearly knew the gospel because they were converts to Christ, but Paul reminded them of the gospel truths and then showed them how those truths came to bear on daily living. And he did this through rich doctrinal teaching. In verse 16, we read that Paul was also writing from a position of authority and by compulsion because he was an apostle of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And we will remember that the church in Rome had a large Gentile population. Paul describes his calling as one of being a minister of Christ Jesus in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The grace that was given to Paul by God was his calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 9.15, after Paul had just encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, we read that Jesus told Ananias, Go, for he, meaning Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In describing himself as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel, Paul alludes back to the priestly service in the Old Testament where the duty of the priest was to offer or present sacrifices on the altar of God. It's interesting to consider that nowhere else in the New Testament is an apostle called a priest. Instead, they're ministers of Christ Jesus. And this is because Christ is both our sacrifice and our high priest. This means there's no longer a need for priests to make atonement for the sins of God's people through sacrifices. And there's also no longer a need for a priest to function as an intermediary between God and man. Christ's sacrifice on the cross gave us direct access to the Father, as we read in Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So since we no longer need a priest to represent us for God, it's clear that Paul is speaking figuratively when he says that his offering to God was a Gentile believer's. Paul, along with all believers, have access to God through Christ to offer ourselves and our service to him as a living sacrifice. Paul's offering to the Gentile, of the Gentile believers uh, was Paul's offering had come through Christ, through his ministry. But Paul couldn't take credit for his ministry and success. In fact, he was very careful not to. In verses 17 through 18, we see that Paul wanted to boast about his success, but not for his own edification. Instead, he wanted to boast so that Christ would be glorified, for it was through Christ that Gentiles were brought to obedience. Notice that Paul doesn't even suggest that he's a partner or a co-laborer with Christ, for he understands that he was merely an instrument for Christ to work through. Paul goes on to give specific ways in which Christ worked through him to bring Gentiles to salvation. First, by word and deed, Paul preached the gospel. 
In Romans 1.16, Paul declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek also. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ and not Paul's own message, for it was given to him through a revelation of Christ Jesus, and Paul was under compulsion to preach it. Not only did Paul preach the gospel, but he also lived out the gospel through his own personal obedience. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul told the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Second, in verse 19, we read that Christ also accomplished his purposes through Paul by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was authenticated through miraculous signs and wonders, which affirmed his apostolic calling. Christ was authenticating Paul as his messenger, and the Holy Spirit enabled Paul to perform these signs and wonders. But the enabling work of the Spirit extended to all of Paul's evangelistic ministry. In other words, the Holy Spirit enabled Paul to perform signs and wonders, which confirmed the gospel message that Paul proclaimed. But the Holy Spirit also worked inwardly on the hearts of those who would receive the gospel message by faith. And what was the result of Christ working through Paul? Well, Paul writes that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, he had fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. This eastern part of the Roman Empire covered approximately 1,400 miles. Paul is often referred to as a, a pioneer missionary, which means that his specific apostolic calling was to preach the gospel message to those who had not heard of Christ and to plant churches. He would preach the gospel, establish a foundation of gospel truth, and then encourage them to follow what they had learned. He would then entrust the church to faithful, qualified leaders, those who had been called for teaching and pastoring, men like Timothy and Titus. This didn't mean that he wouldn't remain in contact with those churches that he had established, and this is clear by the epistles that we have in the New Testament. For instance, letters to the Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Thessalonians, they were all written to churches that Paul had established and subsequently visited on his missionary journeys. They were his beloved, and he continued in warm affection, concern, and constant prayer for them. However, as we read in verses 20 through 21, Paul knew that his primary calling was to take the gospel to those who had not heard of Christ. And his obedience to this calling was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in 52:15, where we read, those who have, never heard, who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul was called to build an apostolic foundation in areas where a foundation had not been laid. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And he also says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So we see then in verses 14 through 21 that Paul is writing to assure the believers in Rome that he has confidence in them and that he believes what he has heard about them as he wrote in Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And we also see that he's writing to give them the reason he has been providentially hindered from coming to them. So now, 
in verses 22 through 30, we're going to see three more reasons Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. First, he wanted them to know he had longed to come and visit them. You remember from the beginning of the letter where he wrote, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So now, in, conclusion, in the conclusion of the letter, Paul is again reiterating that he longed to come to them, and as we've just read, he had been hindered because he first had to complete the work that God had called him to. But now in verse 23, Paul declares that his work in preaching the gospel to those who have not heard of Christ, at least in the Roman Empire, Eastern Roman Empire, was finished. So he wanted to let them know that he was making plans to come and visit them on his way to Spain. Verse 24 brings us to now another reason Paul is writing to them. He hopes that he will be able to receive support, likely tangible support, such as supplies and perhaps even an escort while he made his journey to, Rome, or to Spain. Paul's letter to the Romans was unique in that he hadn't established this church, as we've already discussed, yet the church in Rome could be very instrumental in helping Paul take the gospel message to the western part of the Roman Empire, beginning with Spain. For example, when Paul first began his missionary journey, where the prophet, there were prophets and teachers that were in Antioch, to include Barnabas and Paul, in Acts 13, 2, we read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, which is Paul, for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Antioch was the first Gentile church, and it was strategically located along several major trade routes. Paul returned to Antioch at the end of his first and second missionary journeys. This is what we would call today his sending church. The role of the sending church is to provide tangible and spiritual support to the missionaries. Paul may have been writing to the believers in Rome with the hope that they would become his sending church to the West, much like Antioch was in the East. I mean, think about it. The church in Rome was strategically located. They were mature in their faith. They had a good reputation around the world, and they likely had the means to support him as he took the gospel to Spain and other unreached areas of the West. So Paul, in verses 24 through 25, said he hoped to pass through Rome on his way to Spain, but first, he intended to go to Jerusalem to bring financial support to the unbelieving Jews that were still living there. And this was not the first time that Paul had taken financial support to believers in Judea. So what is this support, and why did Paul need to take it? We read in Acts 11:27 through 30, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. On another occasion, Paul and Barnabas met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, and they went, when they were being sent away with the blessing to take the Gentiles, the gospel to the Gentiles, the leaders of the church asked them to remember the poor, 
which Paul was glad to do. Most Bible scholars believe that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were poor because they suffered persecution for their Christian beliefs. So we read that Paul collected financial support from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul explains in verse 26 that they were happy to give out a gratitude for the spiritual blessings that Gentiles have received through the Jews. You'll recall from our study of Romans 11 that Gentiles are a branch grafted onto a tree that is supported by the promises and covenants that were made with Abraham. So now moving on to verses 30 through 32, we see yet another reason Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. After telling them of his travel plans, he was urging them to strive together with him and for him in prayer. The meaning of strive here is to fight alongside someone, to strain together. Paul is asking for their fervent prayer, not indifferent prayer. He, asked, he is asking for the type of prayer that James describes in 5, 16 through 17, when he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Paul knew his dependence was on the Lord, and he was well acquainted with the power of prayer, and that's why he prayed without ceasing and why he asked for prayer on his behalf. So how would you characterize your prayer life? Would you say it's fervent and passionate? Or have your prayers become indifferent as you struggle just to check that box on your to-do list? I know that I've been guilty of this. One author wrote, It's easy to strive in prayers for ourselves, for we feel our sufferings and we have an experiential understanding of the urgency of our needs. We find it much harder to strive in prayer for others because we do not have this experiential connection. We're not in their shoes. That's why we should work hard to empathize with others and their needs, for as we get a stronger sense of what is necessary for them, we're better able to pray for others with all perseverance. And wasn't it wonderful getting to pray for each other in our groups this year? It seemed like praying for one another really helped us bond together in our groups. So let me encourage you, continue to pray for one another. Consider exchanging numbers with a few ladies so that you can lift each other up throughout the summer in prayer. Prayer unifies believers, and maybe this was a way for Paul to build a relationship with the believers in, Rome's, believers in Rome that he didn't know yet. They could begin by being united through prayer in his apostolic calling to take the gospel of Christ to those in the West. Notice also in verses 31 through 33 how Paul is asking for very specific things. First, he asked that he would be delivered from the unbelieving Jews in Judea. There were many Jews in Jerusalem that opposed Paul. In fact, in Acts 20, 22, we read, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in me in every city that in prison and afflictions await me. So Paul knew what awaited him in Jerusalem, but he didn't know the final outcome of what that encounter would be. So he asked for prayer that he would be delivered from them. Second, Paul asked that the gift from the Gentile churches would be accepted by Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And third, he asked for prayer that he would be able to come to them in Rome for a time of refreshment. And how did God answer these prayers? 
Well, we learn from Acts 21, 17 through 18, that the brothers in Jerusalem received Paul gladly. The implication is that they received the gift, but more importantly, they glorified God for what the gift represented in terms of the evidence of the things God had done through Paul among the Gentiles. God also answered the prayer to deliver Paul from the unbelieving Jews. We read in Acts that Paul was met with opposition shortly after arriving in Jerusalem. He was dragged out of the temple by the Jews and they tried to kill him. But the Roman officials intervened and arrested Paul, presuming he must be guilty of something. Paul's life was spared and he was set on a trajectory for Rome where he would be under house arrest for two years. God answered these three specific prayers. And speaking of the value of praying specifically, the late theologian R.C. Sproul wrote, when all our prayers are either vague or universal in scope, it is difficult for us to experience the exhilaration that goes with clear and obvious answers to prayer. Well, let's move now to the final chapter of Romans. And yes, I do realize we have a long list of names in front of us, most of which I can barely pronounce, and I am what's standing between you and chicken salad chick. <laughs> so... Keeping that in mind, I don't plan on reading through each of these names, but I also don't want to minimize the significance of what this list of 26 people represents and why Paul would include them in his personal greetings. First of all, Phoebe, from verses 1 through 2, was the woman that Paul entrusted to deliver this letter to Rome on his behalf. She was a servant, or what we would call now uh, today a deaconess of the church. She was concerned with taking care of the needs of the people in the church in Sencria, which was a seaport in Corinth. She was also a patron, which means she provided financial support to Paul and others. Paul was essentially writing a letter of recommendation attesting to her fine Christian character and asking the believers in Rome to help her with whatever she needed and to welcome her. Next, Paul sends a personal greeting to those he has a warm affection for in Rome. We have Prisca, or also known as Priscilla, and Aquila, whom we're acquainted from from the book of Acts and some of uh, other of Paul's letters. They were fellow workers in Christ alongside Paul and were so loyal to him that they were willing to die for him. Paul, along with the Gentile churches who benefited from his ministry, were grateful to them. We can speculate on who some of the other people are in his greeting because the same name is found in other parts of scripture. For instance, we see Rufus, who might have been the son of the Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus's cross, but we can't be certain. But what really stands out in this list are the various backgrounds, which demonstrates the power of the gospel to break down dividing walls and unite believers into one body of Christ. There are men and women, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and freedmen, members of common households and members of noble households. As Paul declared in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And they were loved by Paul. They were his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, and some he even spent time in prison with. But notice, he didn't commend them for what they had or for any earthly accomplishments. He commended them for the hard, sacrificial work they did in the Lord. The list of names represents all that Romans 12 encapsulates. For example, they presented themselves as a living sacrifice to God. 
and they were one body with many members, each having a different function. They were one body in Christ and individually members of one another. They also demonstrated the marks of true Christian love for one another. With brotherly affection, they outdid one another in showing honor. They were not slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit as they served the Lord. They rejoiced in hope, were patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. They contributed to the needs of the saints and showed hospitality. One author summed up Paul's greeting this way. Paul's encouragement was rooted in his love for the gospel. He didn't simply commend people for being really good at something. He honored them for the work of God he saw in and through them. These were fellow workers, fellow servants, fellow saints. Paul's heart beat with gratitude because God had saved these men and women and used them to bless others. The strongest bonds of friendship should be gospel bonds. The deepest affections ought to be stirred in us not because we like the same movies and music or come from the same place and root for the same teams, but because we share the same passion for an identity in the gospel. These greetings are more than secular hellos. They are signs of church-wide solidarity growing out of our communion together through our union with Christ, end quote. And I pray that we would all have this type of communion with other believers that comes as we serve alongside one another because of and through our union with Christ. And I realize serving takes on different forms depending on the season of life that we're in. But let's not forget that Paul even commended Rufus's mother for being like a mother to him. After Paul offers his greeting, he adds what I like to think of as his XO to the letter. He tells them to greet another, one another with a holy kiss, which is a way of expressing holy affection to one another in the body. Today, it's a hug or a warm handshake or maybe even a fist bump. And if that's the XO of the letter, what comes next is what I would call the PS of the letter. In his final instructions found in verses 17 through 20, Paul gives a warning to watch out for false teachers that introduce doctrine contrary to what the Roman believers knew to be true. And we might ask, why is Paul warning them about this? And why here at the end of the letter in the middle of greetings? Well, we can't be certain. There does seem to be some continuity in his thoughts. He had just commended a long list of people in Rome that likely characterized the church as a whole who sacrificially served the Lord. While there's no evidence to suggest that there were, all, were already false teachers there, Paul knew that false teaching posed a threat to their unity. So he warned them to be alert to such people who, in contrast, did not serve the Lord, but instead served themselves. The believers in Rome had a good reputation, for Paul says their obedience was known by all. So this was their testimony and their witness, and they were to preserve it by avoiding those that introduced false doctrine. Paul told them to discern what is good, according to the definition, God's definition of good, and to be innocent of what is evil. But along with this warning, he leaves the reader with hope, hope in the certainty that Satan, the source of all that is evil, will ultimately be defeated. So after some additional greetings for those, from those that were with Paul, he appropriately concludes this letter, rich letter in praise. Paul praises the only wise God who had previously hidden his plan of redemption. Although the prophets wrote of it, man did not understand because God had not yet revealed it. But when Christ came, the mystery was revealed, and that mystery included salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile 
who have put their faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul has declared the message of salvation all throughout this letter. For instance, we've seen that heaven is a free gift from God. Therefore, because it is a gift, it's nothing that we can earn or deserve. If we were to earn heaven by our own merit, we would have to be perfect. But we all fall short of that, don't we? As Paul has declared, and something we are all well acquainted with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We also know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. Romans chapter 2 tells us that God is a just God, and because he is just, he must punish sin. So if we can't be good enough to get into heaven, and we know we're guilty of sin, deserving of God's just wrath, how does anyone get to heaven? While to man this might seem like a dilemma, it is not so for God. For God is also a loving God, as we learned in chapter 8. And he provided the solution when he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world fully man, yet fully God, to pay the debt we could never pay. He was perfect and without sin, and from Romans 5.8 we learn, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died on the cross and rose again three days later. He now sits at the right hand of God to intercede from us, Romans 8.34. So how do we receive the free gift of salvation from God? We believe in what has been done for us through saving faith, the faith that we learned about in Romans chapter 4. And we turn from our sins and we turn to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. As Romans 10:13 declares, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that if anyone here isn't sure that they've received this free gift, if you can't say for certain that you know if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven, I pray that today you would turn to him. And if you have any questions, I promise your leaders would love nothing more than to talk to you about this. And for those who have received God's free gift of eternal life by faith, then let me encourage you to remind yourself of these gospel truths every day. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we've had to study through this amazing letter of Paul that you inspired him to write. We thank you for these gospel truths that remind us that salvation is a free gift from you. And I pray that we would be united as sisters in Christ serving alongside one another, praying fervently for one another as you work through us for your glory. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.